Israel cries out to God, help. God says, I hear. Here's help. Liberation. And God says, I make you a promise of a land of promise. Walk this way. Before Israel takes too many steps, she groans and complains about everything. About everything. Uh, so extreme is her complaint, she even has the audacity to say to this wonderfully good and gracious God, we want to go back to bondage. <laughs> it was better for us there than for you to have us die here. And by implication, they impugn the motives of the God who heard her cry for help and set her free. Uh, Israel says to God, you don't care what will happen to us in the wilderness. You don't care what will happen to our children. <gasps> and as you might expect, God responds. But I think you probably will not expect God's response. Would you take a look with me? It's in Numbers chapter 15. I must tell you, I was blown away by this. I expect God to respond to Israel. But I really don't expect God to respond the way he does. Numbers chapter 15. Uh, take a look. Look, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving you. I had to stop. I could go no further. I had to try to explain this, which, which was so perplexing and surprising. I was confounded by this. Irrational response. Illogical, unreasonably gracious response. I don't think I can uh, overly dramatize the hard-heartedness of my people uh, towards our God. I don't think I could say enough about how bad it is. And I see this. Tell Israel when you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving you. And uh, I tried to explain it. It's perplexing to me. And I thought th theologically, and I thought about, uh, I thought linguistically, and I thought, I thought, and I was getting nowhere until the chorus of a song I used to sing popped into my head, and then I had the explanation. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. And that gave me the answer. Would you sing with me? Sing with me. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace, 
Grace that is greater. Oh. I see the greatness of Israel's sin. I see the greater greatness of God's grace. And it applies to me. And it applies to you. Otherwise, this is just a history lesson. Oh, no. It's meant for you. It's meant for me. Grace, grace. God's grace. Oh, for sure there is a consequence for sin. Israel deserved it and received it. Forty years of wilderness wandering. However, though there be a consequence for Israel's sin, do you see God continues on with them to the place of promise in spite of them? Grace, grace, God's grace, his grace, which is greater than all their sin. He does not forsake them. That would be deserved. He does not replace them. That would be deserved. He does not withdraw his promise of the land to them. That too would be deserved. Instead, he says, speak to the sons of Israel, Moses, and say to them, when. I don't think in any translation represented here, you'll find the word if. It's when. Not if you enter. When. You end. Can you see the certainty in the word? Can you see the irreversibility in the word? Can you see that the greatness of Israel's sin is not greater than the greatness of God's grace? In the word when. When you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving by grace to you. I'm giving to you the land. What is to be learned from this? Two things. Human sin abounds, but God's grace superabounds. If you strike Israel from the record, as many are increasingly prone to do today, and uh, increasingly from the pulpits across America, you, you're hearing almost nothing <laughs> about the people of the book, and we're robbing ourselves as a result. Because if you strike Israel from the record, and God's record of response to Israel, as contained in the Bible, you miss the two things I just told you. Human sin abounds. How do I know that? Look at Israel. Look at the most privileged people on earth, and look and see what their sinful hearts led them to do. Israel teaches me, about the sin nature of humankind. And then I also learn, as I, got, I see God's interaction with Israel, of the surprising, amazing grace of Almighty God. If you extract Israel from the mix, I'm prone to wonder about how God responds to me during my times of personal sin and failure. What drives home the profound theological truth of the assurance of my salvation is God's record of dealings with Israel. 
And that's how he is to me, and that's how he is to you. Two things to be learned. Human sin abounds, God's grace superabounds. And so those promoting what I mentioned last week is called replacement theology, which started a long time ago with Augustine and is being popularized today by many. Those promoting replacement theology, and that is to say God is finished with Israel. He's replaced them because they've done such a lousy job of responding to him. That's replacement theology. Those promoting replacement theology, those insisting Israel has forfeited her claim to the land, make, to me, perfect sense. Human sense. God gives privilege. Israel squanders it and turns from it. Uh, my, my puny little mind tells me a replacement theology makes sense. They turn from God, God turns from them. That's the way it is. Makes sense. Except the replacement theologians, intelligent though they surely are, are missing something. It's called God's amazing grace. You know what grace is? Grace is something that doesn't play by the rules. Here's the rule. Be nice to me, I shall be nice to you. Like me, I will like you. Bless me, I will bless you. I'm telling you, those are the rules of the game. Here's grace. I will be good to you. I will be faithful to you. I will be kind to you. I will show love to you in spite of you. That's grace. It doesn't play by the rules. And it's so inexplicable. It is so foreign. It is so out of this world. Even brilliant theologians minimize it. And they empower Israel. They say Israel's sin is sufficient to minimize God's amazing grace. Now the danger there is you might be next. You see? So I don't think the replacement theologians intend to do this, but they're detracting from the character of God unintentionally. They're saying, oh God, we see the record of your promises to Israel, but you will fail in bringing them into the land and keeping them there, for they have outsinned your grace. Can you see? How dangerous that is to your personal health and well-being as a Christian. So during my times of personal failure and sin, I'm not encouraging it, but it happens. During those times, I'm able to say, oh, God of all grace, I have sinned. Thank you for forgiving me. And oh, God. Thank you for never leaving me, nor for a God I accept the natural consequences of my sin. I know I have minimized the fullness of your blessing upon me. I understand that. Uh, that's what sin does. But, oh, God, I know. I know you'll never leave me or forsake me. And the way I know it is by remembering how you responded to Israel. Can you see how serious this is? It looks like eh? Israel turns from God, God turns from her. Is that what he's going to do when you turn from him? 
Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. And so we read this divine surprise. When you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving you, you will not see this notion in any other body of religious thought. This is grace. It's far into human mentality It is not based on fairness. It's not tit for tat. It's not I'll give you what you deserve. It's you are mine anyway. Anyway, the most brilliant, liberating, freeing word. Oh, God, this is what I've done. This is what I've said. This is what I've thought. Oh, God. Stop. I love you. Anyway, you are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Did I ever tell you my anyway story? I was pastoring a church in Chicago many, many moons ago. And I asked an artist to draw a sign that I wanted to stick on the pulpit. And it had the word anyway. And I just uh, wanted it so that members, when visitors would come and say, what kind of church is this? I told the members, why don't you tell them we're an anyway church? Anyway, yeah. We're a bunch of imperfect people whom God loves anyway. Just tell them that. So I asked this artist, this guy, you know, can you make a sign right there anyway? We'll put it on. He said, yeah. So I come in one Sunday, and there it is. There's the sign. Well, he was such a creative artist that from about three rows back and further, it looked like Amway. <laughs> Had all these curl cues and stuff. Some, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men. So we became an Amway church. Anyway, anyway, any, anyway. I hope you make application from all this to your own Walk with God. You may sin, and your sin does bring upon you consequences which may indeed hinder the fullness of God's blessing upon you, but, but your sin will never cause him to reject you. Your sin will never cause him to replace you, and your sin will never cause him to withdraw his promise of your land of promise, heaven. Never, never, never. And the next time you doubt it, I offer you one word as a solution. Israel. You see? Israel. So, your personal failures, your sin, mine, ought to, but will not bring God's grace to an end. With regards to God's grace towards you, it ain't over till it's over, and it ain't never going to be over. That's good news. Never, never, never. So God says, when you enter the land where you are to live, and which I'm giving you, then, verse 3, make an offering by fire to the Lord. It's a burnt offering, a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow, or as a free will offering, or in your appointed times, to make a soothing aroma to the Lord from the herd or from the flock. Now, listen, the people would expect 
God to rid himself of them. The people would expect God to replace them. The people would expect God to withdraw the promise of the land from them. And instead, God gives them laws to live by when they get into the land. I can't tell you how verse 3 exhilarated them because it meant continuation of the relationship. God had already spoken earlier in the book of Leviticus of offerings, and now he repeats it as if to say to them, nothing has changed. I'm your father. I'm in covenant relationship with you. Move on to the place of promise. When I was a kid growing up uh, on the block, every once in a while... Um, the guys would decide, we would decide, let's sleep out tonight. We would sleep, it, it was kind of urban camping. So we would, on roofs, we would find roofs in the, in the neighborhood and sleep on the roofs. It was, that's what, it was urban camping. And so uh, I remember the guys sometimes, they'd have to say, okay, yeah, well, I got to ask my dad if I could do it. I got to ask my dad. And I remember saying, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah, we got to ask our dad. I'd ask my dad. I didn't have a dad to ask. I had an alcoholic dad. I had a dad who was there but not there. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got to ask my dad. I remember thinking, why can't I have a dad who cares enough about whether I sleep out on the roof at night? Why can't I have a dad who says, no, you can't? You know what no, you can't means? It means I care about how you live. You know what verse 3 means? It means Israel, you have a dad. I care about how you live. When you get into the land. You know when they're going to get into the land? 40 years later. And God is saying, but you can go to the bank on this. Here are the laws to live by when you get in the land. He's the father some of us never had. His laws tell us, I care about how you live. And so God does the unexpected here once again. He tells them what he wants them to do when they get it. See, that's, look, I know I'm a Jewish guy. I don't know if I've told you this lately. I'm a Jewish guy. But, but I'm not trying to do a Jewish thing. I think I'm doing a Bible thing here. This is what gets me about those who are turning against Israel in increasing numbers even in our seminaries, our seminaries, we're, in, we're seeing increasing inclinations in the direction of uh, replacement theology and, and all the rest. And I just don't get it when I'm reading things like this. How, is, how are they replaced? When he says, I'm preparing you for the land. Not to get you out of the land. I don't get it. And so from verse 3 on, on, God tells them, all the way to like verse 21, what he expects of them when they get when they get in the land, the people sinned. And, and the people, as a consequence, would indeed wander about. They were so close to the land, the promise, but they would spend 40 years getting there. You see, that's a consequence of sin. But the people would indeed come into the land because the land was promised by God without any condition attached. Hmm. So herein lies the basis for your assurance. Can you please tell me what condition the Savior attached to his promise to save you? He did not say, I will save you. If you will perfect yourself, I will 
save you if you clean up your act. I will save you if you make promises to me. I will save you if you get baptized. I will save you if you join a church. I will save you if you get... I will save you if you ask me to. What can you do to forfeit it? Fail to meet the condition. But what's the condition? <laughs> None. Just as I am without. But that thy blood was shed for me. Please tell me how you forfeit that. But what can you forfeit? Joy. The joy and peace of salvation. Just as Israel has forfeited a joyous presence in the land. Down to this very day, it ain't so joyous. Assaulted on every side. It's a picture for us. So I hope you're make, making application from this. And so the text through verse 21, as I mentioned, has to do with prescribed offerings of worship when they get in the land. And I won't read them to you. I just want to point out uh, something I noticed, uh, I think, fairly clearly. Every one of the offerings has to do with food. So, for instance, take a look at verse 4. The one who presents his offering uh, shall present it a grain offering. That's food, right? Tenth of an ephah of fine flour, flour is food, a hin of oil, oil. You shall prepare wine for the drink offering. It's food. A fourth of a hen with the burnt offering or the sacrifice. Each lamb. It's food stuff. Wait a second. God is requiring of Israel food offerings. But God could not require of them what they did not have. So that he requires food offerings when they enter the land implies that they will have food to offer when they enter the land. You see it? It's the same with us. When God extends to us the privilege of giving, the implication is he will supply us so that we have that which we can offer to him. In fact, most of us are giving out of the excess of what he has supplied to us. See? What assurance this would give a wandering race of stiff-necked people who for 40 years are losing their way in the wilderness. When you get there, do this. Offer food. <gasps> that means they'll be sustained. All these offerings involve the fruit of the land. Flour is going to come from Crops grown in the soil. Oil will come from trees. Wine will come from clusters of grapes. God will keep his promise in spite of them. And God will be their supply. And God will keep his promise to you in spite of you. And God will be your supply. Get rid of Israel. And you're right to have doubts about all this. So I want to uh, skip and close on a, on a note I hope you find interesting. Can you skip with me to verse 14? It's interesting. If an alien, does your Bible say alien? It might say stranger. That's better. The alien kind of 
kind of seems like from Mars, right? We're not talking about if a stranger, or it might say sojourner, alien, that is to say someone who's not part of Israel by birth, by, 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 by ethnicity. If an alien sojourns, sojourns with you, does this imply Israel and her wanderings are picking up people along the way? Sure. When she left Egypt, a lot of Egyptians went with her. And then along the way, there's all kinds of people, nomadic people groups of all kinds. So they join in. If an alien sojourns with you, or one who may be among you throughout your generations, and he wishes to make an offering by fire, imagine a non-Israelite saying, I too want to make an offering of thanksgiving, of praise, of fellowship offering, a peace offering to this wonderful God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If that person wants to do this as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so he shall do. As for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for that alien, for that non-Israelite, one way. For the one who sojourns with, it'll be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the alien be before the Lord. There is to be one law and one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. Grace, grace, God's grace. Know what this is? A picture, a foreshadowing of the church. Right here. The root of the faith. I know I'm beating this horn quite a bit because I'm doing it to, as a countermeasure against the assault on it in high theological circles. People are retranslating Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Of course, nobody preaches the next part to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. What does it mean to the Jew first? Well, it's being reinterpreted uh, in all manner of ways today. So as a countermeasure, yeah, I, wa I want to emphasize certain things. And this text is a foreshadowing of the church. It's Jewish in origin. The roots of the faith are all Jewish. I don't know if you knew this. The Messiah is Jewish. Now, I know you, th you think I'm trying to uplift Jews. You got that wrong. You're not hearing me. I'm trying to uplift the Jewish Messiah. There's a big difference here. There's a big, big difference. All the feasts are Jewish. All the writers of the Bible, with the possible exception of Luke, are Jewish. The Lord will establish his earthly reign in Jerusalem, in a temple. We will observe Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. It's not that God is a respecter of persons, but he has chosen. He has chosen to work out his redemptive plan through Israel. <gasps> but not to stop there, to be extended to aliens and sojourners who are under the same law and statute of access to God. And so we read in Ephesians 2 that through the cross, the enmity between the two groups, Jew and Gentile, has been destroyed by God who has made both groups into one new man. I only want to say this, my fellow Gentile followers of the Lord Jesus. Um, 
Gentiles who come to faith do not replace Israel. They join Israel. Big difference. Big difference. So some would say the church is spiritual Israel. Not true. Not true. God makes a distinction. And it follows all the way through so that Paul in Romans 11 says, I don't want you, brethren, he's talking to Christians, right? I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation. That's called Jewish sarcasm. That's Paul saying, don't be so arrogant. Brethren. I don't want you to be uninformed. What's the mystery? That a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Partial. Until, that's a time indicator. That means there's more to come. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Those are Gentile people all over the world being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb when they hear the gospel message. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Then what happens? And then all Israel will be saved. That doesn't look to me that God's through with the Jews. And then all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. What's another name for Zion? Jerusalem. I, I, I live here in Houston, specifically Pearland, and love Pearland. But the deliverer is coming from Zion, not Pearland. Uh, 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 you know, God could have chosen any real estate he wanted to, but he said Zion. The deliverer is not coming from Rome. No, he ain't. He's coming from Zion. The deliverer is not coming from Mecca or Medina or Saudi Arabia. He's coming from Zion. Now, you can argue all you want with God, as people are arguing today. Uh, but the text says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. Here's another word. When I take away their sin. No, the church has not replaced Israel any more than these sojourners replace the Israelites. They join with them. Have a problem with that? Take it up with God. (laughs) Take it up with God. And so Paul says, have they stumbled so as to fall? The Jews. You know what he says? He answers his own question. May it never be. Anathema is the Greek word. May it never. It's the strongest form of negation available in the Greek language. And no way Jose is what he's saying. May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. In order to make them jealous. Could I tell you something? Replacement theologians. Those who say Israel has lost their right to the land. Those who say the Jews are getting what they deserve. I got to tell you. That's not very effectively going to arouse my people to jealousy. And yet that's exactly what Romans 11 says. Why God offered salvation to Gentiles. To make my people jealous. So when a guy like Hack Hennegraaff, R.C. Sproul, big guns, say it's over with the Jews. When the guys I mentioned last week, John Piper, fantastic man of God, he is. 
Says Israel lost their right to the land because they lost sight of God. Not only is that theologically incorrect, biblically inconsistent, not only does it minimize the gracious character of God, but I can tell you what it does to my people. It ain't living proof of a loving God to a watching Jewish world, I can tell you that. It's arrogance. And the Bible says, if God set aside the natural branches, don't be so arrogant, you wild olive branches, because God could set aside you too. Can you see? What's good for the goose is good for the gander. If God's through with the Jews, when does he get through with you? Would you like to see a record of the church's historical response to that which, with which it's been privileged? Oh, my goodness. You see, you see, you see. What's, it, what's at stake here? Now, I'm, I'm getting a... I decided of late I, I'm going to be less discreet and tactful then this is my normal stuff. Because things are happening. They're closing in on Israel. Egypt is not going in a more moderate and conservative direction. My dear friends, we join with you in praying for the wonderful people in Egypt. But I got to tell you, Mubarak is not being replaced by, uh, by, by, by folks you can deal with. The majority of Egyptians just polled said they don't want any peace with Israel and they want to be under the authority of the Quran. Whatever happens to Gaddafi in Libya, I guarantee you he will not be replaced by someone we can get along with any better. If Assad goes down in Syria, I guarantee you the, the people who go against him will not replace him with a more moderate... I'm telling you, I'm telling you uh, even as we speak, um, uh, Hamas and Fatah. Uh, I use these terms with which you're going to be forced to be more familiar. These are the two warring entities that represent the Palestinian people. Uh, Hamas, a uh, terrorist group, and Fatah, sort of more moderate. Now, they're getting together. You know what this means for Israel? Look out. That means unobstructed uh, weapons coming in from Egypt into Gaza. Even Mubarak tried to control it. Why? Because we paid him. Now, who are you going to pay in Egypt now? The Muslim Brotherhood doesn't want our dollars. It wants us dead. So all things are happening now in a very interesting way in Egypt. Uh, <clears throat> We go around the world with our finest special forces. None better. We do not secure the permission of a foreign entity before we do what had to be done. And yet our government berates Israel for defending itself in similar fashion. Bin Laden was a threat across an ocean. Israel's threat is 10 feet away. <laughs> but the United Nations issues sanctions against Israel as she defends herself. We defend ourselves. <laughs> I'm telling you, things are happening politically. So you have Hamas who wants to d drive Israel into the sea and kill all the Jews, and you have theologians who want to kill us theologically. Why? I'm telling you why. Get rid of the Jews. 
And there's no reason to believe that God's going to keep his promises to you. That's why. And Satan knows the number one way to detract from the character of God is to get rid of the Jews. That's why when God said, Moses, I'll replace these people with a new group of people from you. He said, oh, no, God, all the nations will say, look, you were not able to bring them into the land. It was a test, and Moses passed, and it's a test that our theologians are failing. They should say, oh, no, may it never be that you will fail to fulfill your promises to Israel. If that's the case, the nations of the world will will devalue your promises in the book of promises, the Bible. And so you got theologians today, they're amillennialists, reformed theologians. They, there's no literal 1,000-year earthly reign of Christ, and that means there's no time for him to fulfill his promises to Israel, and therefore, God's a liar. Folks, desperate days. I have friends who head up major Jewish missions groups whose meetings in churches are being canceled at a rapid clip. Evangelism of Jews is drying up. What happened to Romans 1.16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to the Jew. For, I close with this. And boy, I should have maybe closed earlier. When the Bible says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, what does it mean? That Jews are more important? No! Does it mean cease evangelistic efforts uh, with regard to other people groups until you save the Jews? No. It means a priority of relevance, folks. If the gospel isn't first most relevant to Jews, how could you suggest it be relevant to anyone else? If the gospel is given in Jewish terms, Jewish holidays, Jewish temple, Jewish sacrifices, Jewish priests, Jewish prophets, Jewish Messiah, and you jump over the Jews on your way to win all other people groups of the world, you're actually minimizing the effectiveness of your evangelism because those people are saying, if this is not relevant to the Jews anymore. How's it relevant to me? It has to be to the Jew first. It's most, now, I uh, have a problem with that? Argue with God. I didn't come up with this. Apparently, theologians have had a problem with God, and so they tried to de-Jewishize the Bible. Do you know that? You have in your laps a Bible that calls this book Numbers. Greek translators called it numbers, arithmoi. The Hebrew name is bimidbar, in the wilderness. It's not numbers. You have in your hand a, a Bible, and the name of a New Testament book, Jude. Who is Jude? Isn't that a guy in a Beatles song? Jude? That's not a Jewish name. You know what his name is? Yehuda. You have a, in your hand a, a, a Bible that contains a book called James. James? Jacob is his name. You have in your Bible the name of the Lord's mother, Mary. Mary? Her name is Miriam. How did all this happen in your Bible? Translators of the Bible in the Middle Ages said, you know what? This thing is looking awfully Jewish. 
That's how it got translated that way. Not making this stuff up. If God is finished with the Jews, when is he going to be finished with you? Never. 